Let's turn to our sermon text for today, which is much shorter than it has been in recent weeks. Uh, We'll go to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. We've actually already read it, but we'll go ahead and read these three verses again. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, because today uh, we begin a new series. Uh, We begin a new series on the Ten Commandments. Last Sunday, we finished the book of Genesis, and uh, this week we're going to look at the Ten Commandments, which also does kind of naturally follow chronologically as well. We're not going to go through the whole book of Exodus, but um, after Israel was left in Egypt, after Joseph died and told uh, his brethren that God is going to visit you and bring us out of this land, well, God did that by the hand of Moses, whom he had sent at the appointed time after they had been oppressed for many years by Pharaoh. And he brought them to himself to, to Mount Sinai, where he had at first met Moses. And there on Mount Sinai, he spoke these words. And we're going to uh, look at the Ten Commandments over the course of ten Sundays, beginning here uh, with the first few verses, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. So let me read those again. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. O Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, that we who were lost in darkness and a veil cast over us, that we were each wandering in our own ways, that you have given yourself to us and bound yourself to us by a holy covenant. And you have given us your scripture to guide us. We pray that you would make it useful to us by enlightening our minds to understand what is written in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the setting of these words is that God spoke these words to Israel from Mount Sinai. Uh, They all heard a voice from the mountain. Um, Many of the words were delivered first to Moses, and then Moses delivered to the assembly, and doubtless they uh, also handed it to their own uh, parts of of the people, uh, because it was a very large people that was assembled there at the mountain. But these words, these ten words, uh, you know, these, these ten commandments were spoken by God to the people in, in smoke, in thunder, and they heard his voice. This is recounted in Deuteronomy 5, where years later, 40 years later, Moses is reminding the people of what happened on that day. In Deuteronomy 5, Moses said of the ten commandments, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. So these Ten Commandments were, were special. There were other words that helped explain them and exposit them and ceremonies and ordinances that were added. But these Ten Commandments were spoken directly to the people and they were written on tablets of stone. Now, the original tablets of stone would be broken as, 
they fell away into idolatry quickly. But then they were regraved on, on new tablets of stone, and those tablets of stone were kept in the Ark of the Covenant and brought with the people. These were the Ten Commandments. God had been faithful to his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. He had liberated their offspring from Egypt as promised by the hand of Moses, and he had brought them to himself at the holy mountain. And so God refers to this in these opening words. Now, the main point of these first three verses is that because God is the Lord and your God and your Redeemer, therefore have him and no other gods. Have him as your God and no other gods. So first, let's look at verse 2, which we might call the preface, not only to the first commandment, but to all the commandments. Who is the God who speaks to us? Uh, The Lord, your God, your Redeemer. And then secondly, your duty, the duty of the first commandment to have no other gods. So first, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. These words begin by introducing God. When Moses and Aaron had first come to Pharaoh, do you remember the conversation that they had when Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and said that the Lord said, let my people go? Pharaoh didn't just say no. Uh, He also said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord? Well, God, the Lord, had revealed himself, not only through what Moses said, but then in the ten plagues that followed, then in the exodus that followed. Uh, He had made himself known in ages past, and he had done so greatly in the course of bringing Israel out. Pharaoh should have obeyed the voice of the Lord, because he was the true God, the everlasting king, and his triumph over the gods of Egypt and over Pharaoh himself becomes evident in the great uh, uh, showdown that took place in Egypt. The Israelites learned additionally that they should obey the voice of the Lord, not only because he was sovereign, but because he was their God. God had shown that he was their God, their Redeemer, by bringing them out of bondage in Egypt. Now, verse 2 um, is both a preface to the rest, to all the Ten Commandments. I think it's also an essential part or presupposition of the first commandment. Uh, It's appropriate to call it the preface to the Ten Commandments, like our catechism does, since it lays the foundation for the rest. Why should you obey all these commandments? Because of verse 2. Explains who we are obeying and why we should obey him. It's also appropriate to join it to the first commandment in particular, since have no other gods only makes sense when we've just talked about the one true God. There's this one God that is your God. Don't have any others. Have this one. Uh, Follow him, obey him, worship him. But no other gods. Notice that the Ten Commandments are more than bare imperatives. An imperative is someone telling you to do something, right? Do the Ten Commandments tell you to do things? Yes, they definitely tell you to do things. Do they only tell you to do things? There's other types of things in the Ten Commandments, too. They make statements, what we call indicative statements, right? Declarations about who God is, what he does. 
Uh, the Ten Commandments are more than just commands. Um, they have reasons. They have explanations. They have other things, like verse 2. In fact, when you include the preface with the first commandments, the first five commandments all include indicative statements, phrases about God, and all of them include the phrase at least once, the Lord your God. Uh, The Lord your God is a jealous God. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord your God made heaven and earth. The Lord your God is going to be giving you land, uh, emphasizing, driving home, he is the Lord your God. The Ten Commandments are not simply the moral law. The moral law, which would have been true for Adam and Eve, and it's true for us now, is is contained, is is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Um, But it's embedded here in a covenant, in a bond between God and Israel. The Ten Commandments are called in Exodus 34, the words of the covenant. In Deuteronomy 4, they're called his covenant. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant, why was it called the Ark of the Covenant? Because the covenant was in it. It was the box, the Ark, that the covenant was in, because the tablets were in it. And that symbolized God's presence, because God dwelt among his people by virtue of that covenant. Just like, you know, a husband and wife dwell together by virtue of their marriage covenant. Well, God dwelt among his people by means of this word, this bond, saying, I am your God. In this Ten Commandments. He doesn't just tell them what to do. He affirms that he is their God and their Redeemer. Now, covenants of that day uh, introduced, you know, there, there were covenants between, for example, kings and their vassals, people who would get land from them and therefore were supposed to be loyal to their king. Uh, they would introduce the king and his deeds. They would begin by saying, well, I'm king so-and-so, and I've done this great thing for you, and therefore you should be loyal to me, and here's how I want you to live. Um, In fact, it's a pretty natural way for a covenant to begin. Think about marriage covenants, right? I, Melody, or I I did that in my wedding too. I accidentally said I, Melody, instead of I, Peter. I, Peter, take you, Melody. You know, that's how they they begin, right? Um, Where where you use your words and you're specifying the parties of this covenant. Well, God does that here at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. See, I'm just thinking of my wife, and that's why I think of her name first. But God begins by by describing himself and his people. He is the Lord. He is their God. He's brought them out of bondage. That's what he's done for them, established this relationship between them, and it's based on grace and redemption. He doesn't say, do all these things, and then I might bring you out of Egypt. No, he says, I have brought you out of Egypt. I have redeemed you. I am your God. I've shown you that I'm your God. I brought you to myself, and now here is how you're supposed to live as my people. So we learn three things. I've already repeated them several times. Three things about God. First, he is the Lord, the everlasting God who is sovereign over all. If you look closely in your English translation, you'll notice that all the letters are capital, not just the first one. Uh, Capital L, capital O, R, D. That's indicating that it's not simply the Hebrew word for Lord, um, Adon, or Adonai, uh, it's the Hebrew word for God's name. Uh, Usually in English, we pronounce it as Jehovah. We include it in many of our songs, for example. He is Jehovah. Uh, He's not Baal. He's not Marduk. He's Jehovah. Uh, He is uh, this God. And 
this name comes from the name I am in Exodus 3. It comes from the phrase I am. When God had told Moses, or when Moses asked, what, what name should I give them? Who, who's talking to me? And he says, I am who I am. To tell Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then he calls himself Jehovah, uh, the, the word coming from the verb I am as the origin of that name. And so he is this God, I am who I am, the self-existent one who is from everlasting to everlasting, who is therefore, of course, faithful to his people as well, unchanging, perfect. He is eternal, immutable, almighty God. He is the uncreated one. He gives being to all other things. Uncreated, independent, creator of all, steadfast and unchanging throughout all generations. And therefore, obedience is owed to him by all, even by Pharaoh, even by those who are not his people. Uh, He is the creator of all. By him we live and breathe and, and have our being. Therefore, all people should obey him. But secondly, he is your God. The great Jehovah adopted a people as his own. He carried them on eagles' wings and brought them to himself, as he said in chapter 19. He had set his love upon them and made them his own. He had done so with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and now with the whole people, nation of Israel. They were his people upon the same condition as Abraham. Do you remember how Abraham was justified? Was it by his works? It was by believing. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Those same terms for the people of Israel. As Abraham was justified by faith, so are all his true heirs. And God did not annul this at Sinai. He didn't say, now you've been saved by grace up to this point, now you're going to be saved by law, now you're going to be saved by works. Galatians says, no, he didn't annul the promise by, by adding greater revelation, by adding the ceremonies and adding more detail about the law. The condition, the covenant has a condition and it is uh, faith. The people were still his by grace through faith. And he still takes you under his care and protection on the same condition. Those who profess the true religion and their children have entered into a covenant with God, as Israel did of old. And so we can, that's why we say the Ten Commandments to you, too. He is your God. The covenant has a condition, faith in God and his provision of salvation in Christ. Some might grow up among the people of God and, and not believe, just as many Israelites did and were cut off. But to benefit from this covenant, uh, you must have faith in Jesus Christ. And accordingly, by this grace, he is ours. We are his, a people for his own possession. As a vassal obe- owes obedience to his Lord, or as a son owes obedience to his father, so we owe obedience to our God, because we are his. He is ours. If you look to him for salvation, if you expect him to save you because you're his, then you will have all the more reason to obey him. And thirdly, he is your redeemer. He is your God. Accordingly, as your God, he is your redeemer. He has provided atonement for your sins, and has brought you out of bondage. That was symbolized by the Passover lamb in Egypt, 
the lamb that was slain, by his blood they escaped from death, which fell upon the Egyptians so that they released them. And then at the Exodus, where they were uh, set free and the, the Egyptians drowned, well, this is, has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. He is the lamb who was slain for your sins. He was raised as your exodus from condemnation and death, opening a way. He has ransomed you from bondage, as Peter said, as we read earlier, not with perishable things like silver and gold, you know, not like that meanly, you know, poor little stuff like silver and gold. That's just perishable, uh, dispensable things, right? Something more precious, far more precious, the precious blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, like a lamb without spot or blemish. So therefore, as those redeemed, as brought back from death and bondage, you and I should live for the will of God. You are not your own, but you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So God mentions the exodus out of Egypt. This is who I am. I have revealed myself. I am a God who saves. I am a God who rescues my people. This exodus was an expression of God's redemptive grace and adoption, that he had taken them and he showed them that he would save them by the exodus. It was also a demonstration of his supreme power, that he was more powerful than Pharaoh. He was more powerful than the gods of Egypt. He had put them to shame by plague after plague. Your gods can't help you. Your gods can't help you. Your Pharaoh God cannot help you. The Lord is God. And he put them to shame by this exodus as well. But it was also a type of a foreshadowing, a symbol of something yet to come, of our redemption from sin in Jesus Christ. As the New Testament would say, it's similar terms in Colossians, that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that domain of darkness being like Egypt, the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Or Hebrews 2 describes it in these terms as well. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So as God had delivered Israel from Pharaoh and bondage in Egypt, so God saves us through Christ from the devil and from the bondage of of fear and condemnation and death. And so the covenant begins with a statement of gospel grace, of redemption and adoption. The moral law is also going to be included here. How then should we live? It doesn't function in the covenant of grace as it had functioned in the garden. In that first covenant, where God made this arrangement with Adam and Eve, the covenant of works, where they would be sustained and justified by their obedience to the law, and if they failed in one point, they were out of, the, out of it, right? That was the covenant of works. But in the covenant of grace, we're not justified by our obedience to the law. The law instructs you how to respond to his grace. It defines how you should live with your God as his redeemed people. His gracious salvation binds you to obedience as an expression of gratitude and love. 
It would be so ungrateful for us to be, oh, thank you, God, for saving us. Now I'm going to totally ignore you and do whatever I want. Right? No, God shows us how we should live as his people. All right, so that's the first part. Second part here, then, is let's get started. What's the first commandment? The first commandment, the first command is have no other gods. You have this God. Don't add any others, and don't forsake him. Uh, Have no other gods. Have this God, this Jehovah, this your God, this Redeemer. Have him for your God and him alone. There's a positive implied duty. Have him as your God. And then an explicit negative duty. Don't have any others. Everyone ought to worship and obey him. You especially. The church has one husband, right? One Lord. As Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, you cannot serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can only have one master. Uh, And to change the analogy, you can only have one husband, right? Uh, There's an exclusive relationship here. One loyalty, single-minded Does a husband tolerate rivals? As a bride forsakes all others and keeps herself only unto her husband, so the church and all its members ought to forsake all other gods and rivals and keep herself only unto the Lord. Forsaking all others, be faithful to the Lord. Have the Lord as your God. Have him by covenant on the terms he has announced. How can you have this holy and great Jehovah as your God? Who are you to come to him? Well, he has provided you this gracious covenant that we've just talked about. Have him by professing the covenant. Though we were his enemies, he offered a treaty of peace and alliance through Jesus Christ. Have him through faith in the Savior. Accept his terms and give yourself to him. This covenant symbolized by the waters of baptism in which the name of God is placed upon you. And then as we are old enough, we should all openly profess him as your God, as the people of Israel would do again and again. Far be it from me to forsake the Lord, to serve other gods, for he has saved me through the precious blood of his Son. Therefore, I also will serve the Lord, for he is my God. Is what we ought to say. Israel's basic confession of faith can be found in that chapter in Deuteronomy, which we read earlier. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Because we have one God, the Lord, who is one, we have one goal. We are fixed upon one God that we serve. We should be single-minded and undivided. He claims all. We don't parcel out our life among various gods. We have a God for our cooking and a God for our work and a God for our home. No, There is one God that we serve with everything. And so, of course, what does Deuteronomy go on to say? Serve him with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. That he is, we ought to love him with everything. Complete and undivided love and devotion. It also means that his word comes unified. It's it's, uh, from one source. We don't have one God in the Old Testament, one God in the New Testament, as if he's fighting amongst amongst himself. We we have a, a... consistent word, of course, explaining the other parts, the New Testament shedding more light. We have one word from one God. 
and his words are supreme and all-encompassing. That's what Deuteronomy goes on to say next. Not only love him, but then his words should be on your heart. Guess what? Not only on your heart. They should be on your heart, internalized, memorized, or at least remembered, right? That, that you understand them, that you don't just have them go in one ear and out the other. Let them be on your heart, but also in your mouths. Let them be in your mouths. Talk about them. Talk about them when you rise up and when you go by the way and when you lie down and when you get back up and let be talking of them. Talk to your children about them. Let them permeate your education and your life. Uh, speak of them, but not only in your mouths, also on your hands. Not just like, okay, tie the book to your hand, but everything you do should be governed by God's word. Everything that you do with your hands, but not only your hands, also is a frontlet between your eyes. So let everything you see be shaped by the Word of God. Let your whole worldview, your whole interpretation of the things you see around you be shaped by the truth of God's Word. And not only the frontlets between your eyes, where else should they go? How about upon the doorposts of your house? God's Word doesn't just claim you. God's Word claims your house. Let your family life be governed by the Word of God. It helps to therefore read the Word of God in your family, uh, to worship God explicitly. Don't make it a secret, uh, but let the whole life of your family be held to the, to the Word of God, but not just your doorposts. It says gates. He's not talking about the little white fence outside your house. They didn't have those, I think, uh, in, in, in ancient Israel. He's talking about the city gates. The gates referred to the gates of the city where they would meet for, for, for commerce, for politics, for the elders to gather. The Word of God claims that too. Your social life, your political life, that's encompassed by God's Word as well. Even the stranger within your gates. Uh, let the, the Word of God direct you to righteousness, to do what is just and fair and pleasing to the Lord. There's one God and all of it's under Him. Our whole life should be directed by His Word to his glory. So having professed him, therefore serve the Lord in sincerity and faithfulness. To have him as your God is to profess him and then to follow through on that profession. To love him with all your heart. To fear him. It is the Lord whom you ought to fear. A godly fear, a reverent fear. Trust him. Even, Adam, even before we needed salvation, we were supposed to trust him. Now, of course, we're also today uh, saved by faith, by receiving this gift, but then continuing to live by that faith, to trust God and whatever he tells us. Then to listen to his word and to obey him. And, of course, to worship and glorify him, to make it explicit, to gather like we do today, not only to worship and glorify him in everything we do, but then to to gather and to hear his word, to praise him, to pray to him, to worship him. The first commandment, therefore, calls us to have him. It forbids the denying of the true God. Some deny that the God of the Bible is the true God. Some deny that any God exists. We call that atheism. Others profess ignorance about his existence. I don't know if there is a God, but they don't affirm it. And that would be agnosticism. Others deny the relevance of God, that he does exist, but he doesn't really do anything with us. That would be deism. It doesn't interact. Some people do that without having a name for it. They just kind of live life as if God didn't have anything to do. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
All of these forms of denying God are forbidden because they do not give him due recognition. Pharaoh was a fool when he failed to recognize the Lord as God and submit to him. Attend to his word, attend to his works, and behold the Lord our God. The first commandment also forbids not worshiping and glorifying God as the true God and our God. God is known throughout his creation, but many refuse to honor him or to give thanks to him. It's easy in our secular age to forget how important the first commandment is. The world approves of people if, as good people if they simply treat their neighbor well, their fellow man. But they're neglecting a very important thing. How do they treat God? Of course, we should have compassion on those who walk in rebellion, knowing that the only escape from the darkness of sin and Satan and the world, which has cast a veil over mankind, is through the grace of God and the gospel. The same for us as for anyone else. So may we make God known by our witness and pray that God would enlighten their minds as well and lift the veil that is cast over the peoples, that all men might know and acknowledge the true God as God and to worship and glorify him accordingly. That's the implicit positive sense, that have this God. Well, of course, then there's the explicit negative command, have no other gods. This also implies that God is one. There's one God, don't add any to him. Recognizing Jesus as God does not add another God, because he is the same God. This is where we get the doctrine of the Trinity, and don't just have three gods, right? We are monotheists. There is one God though there is three eternally distinct persons in the unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but these three are one God, undivided substance, without parts. We could get more into the doctrine of the Trinity, but I think I I won't go too deep into it. I think I will read, though, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, because there Paul uh, speaks about foods offered to idols and false gods. And uh, he actually echoes the language of Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But then he applies it to both the Father and the Son. Um, In the context there of eating food offered to idols, he says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Uh, He is affirming there is no God but one. There is one God, one Lord, one God, the Father, one Lord, Son, uh, he's, he's there, has an implicit Trinita- Trinitarian doctrine there, that there is a distinct Father and Son, of course, and Spirit as well, but they are one God and one Lord. He's not saying the Son is the Lord, and therefore the Father isn't, right? He's applying the language of God and Lord to the triune God. We use the same language in our creed. We confess one God, the Father Almighty, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, but that's not a contradiction because 
The Son is of one substance with the Father, with the Spirit being one God and Lord. So this command condemns polytheism, having more gods than one. The worship of any other false god, even if you just had one god, if it's the wrong god, that would be another god too. We should worship the God of Israel, the Creator, the triune God revealed in the Old and New Testaments, coming to him through Jesus Christ, especially in this age of greater revelation. If you do not have the Son, you do not have the Father. Uh, Of course, there was always the promise of redemption through Christ that they all looked forward to, and now we know all the more and come to God through the Son. The command also condemns sorcery, witchcraft, and necromancy, any other illegitimate source of supernatural knowledge. Uh, we should look to the Lord. Uh, if you go to Deuteronomy 18, as it contrasts divination, uh, necromancy, that is, you know, trying to contact the dead, sorcery and witchcraft, and then says, don't go to those sources for, for knowledge. Rather, listen to the prophet that I will raise up. Listen to God, trust in his power, and look to his revealed word. Not to the fortune tellers, uh, not to the necromancers. The command also condemns the love of money and other subtle idolatries. Uh, to play, put any created thing in the place of God, to attribute to them divine attributes, or to give them that trust and worship and glory which is due to God alone. Whether that is like uh, rulers, uh, many people explicitly did so in the ancient world, some people maybe still implicitly today, the state, other nations, as Israel would replace their trust in God sometimes by looking to Egypt for help, uh, to your own might, uh, that you might be able to, to, to trust in that alone, as Babylon would trust in his might, as Nebuchadnezzar would say, look at all the kingdom that I've done all by myself, and be humbled for it, or to trust in your money. The first commandment forbids giving the worship and glory that is due to God to any other No created or imagined person or thing should be treated as God. Divine attributes should not be ascribed to creatures, as when which often happens when people superstitiously pray to the dead, as sometimes happens in Roman Catholic circles. Uh, Creatures should not be trusted in for salvation or served as a God. As Jesus told the devil, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So do not fear man more than you fear God. Do not let man bully you or seduce you from obedience to the Lord. His covenant people in particular are bound to him. For us to worship another God is spiritual adultery or is treachery to our Lord. Now, there's two more words that I haven't addressed yet. Before me. I have no other gods before me. Just briefly here, obviously it's quite a short expression, literally before my face. The words before me remind us that we live in God's presence, that he notices, is very displeased with spiritual treachery, the sin of having any other God. Um, paraphrasing there what our, our catechism says, but it's, it's quite evident from the words itself. Do not have any other gods. I'm here. I'm present. Do not put them before my face. He doesn't tolerate rivals. He did not tolerate when man in Eden 
sought to elevate himself as a god, right? To be as God and to therefore disobey his Lord. No one is like our God or can be compared to him. He is the source of every blessing and salvation. So may we worship and follow him as the only true God and our only God. God is the Lord. He is your God. He is your Redeemer. Therefore, have him as your God alone and no other gods. Give him the worship and glory that is due his name. Commit yourself to him. Submit yourself to him unreservedly, sincerely, seeking to obey all his commandments. Now, who among us have done this? From the duty, we'll return to the preface. Uh, The law convicts us that we have not loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Are there parts of our life where we do not conform to his word? Far too many. So we go back to rest and receive upon our God for salvation, to trust in him as our redeemer. If he should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But we, we come to you for our salvation as our God. And then, in gratitude, in confidence, we go forward gratefully to serve him, to live unto his glory, that more and more we might conform ourselves to our heavenly Father and to his likeness. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for your kindness, that you who are exalted on high, who is infinite and holy, has uh, looked upon us and has considered the lowly, that you have brought us uh, up from the mire and from the dust, from our doom, and have given us salvation and brought us near. We pray that you would make your truth effectual and powerful to convince and convert, that we might, with conviction and confidence, uh, pursue your commandments to serve you, that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, that it would be done to your glory. We pray that you would bring this to pass not only here, but throughout the earth. For you are the one who has made at all, and have sent your Son uh, for the salvation of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.